From Jerusalem, Israel, this is From the Midwest to the Middle East, the podcast that explores everything new in U.S. and Israeli economy. Here's your host, Philip Stein. I'm really pleased to be having this podcast today. First of all, this episode is brought to you by Philip Stein and Associates, the largest U.S. CPA firm in Israel, providing U.S. tax services to Israelis, Americans, corporations, startups, and anyone else needing them. Hi, I'm very happy, pleased to have today a, a guest, a friend, a person I've known many years, Dr. Alan Joseph Bauer, who is a fellow Chicagoan, raised in the suburbs of Wilmette, Illinois. After taking a bachelor's in biochemistry at Harvard and a PhD in the same from Wisconsin, Alan came to Jerusalem in 1992 on a U.S. Fulbright postdoctoral fellowship to the Hebrew University. After completing postdocs at Hebrew U and Bar-Ilan, Bauer opened Biosensor Systems Design. In 2013, Bauer co-founded Lishtot Limited and has developed sensors for detection of bacteria and heavy metals in drinking water. Alan is the author and or inventor on over 150 patent applications. And Alan is married to Rivital and they have four boys. The Bauers live in Jerusalem. Welcome, Alan. Thank you very much, Phil. It's always a pleasure being in touch with a good friend and a fellow Chicagoan. So it is my pleasure being, you know, being here with you on this podcast. So should we first talk baseball or not? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to jinx them. Okay. <laughs> so we having, the Cubs yeah. and the White Sox are having such a great right. start. Look yeah, at we, below. <laughs> okay, so we won't talk baseball. No jinxing. They're still both in first place. And uh, if if they're still in first place in October, I'm I'm going to call you. Oh, then. that's fine. Good enough. That's fine. Yeah, I look forward to that. Okay, so let me go in. There's a lot to talk about. You're a well-known person. You've been, you've had an interesting life. Um, since the name of my podcast is From the Midwest to the Middle East, and you too have followed that path, can you tell my listeners about your personal journey to Jerusalem? Oh, absolutely. Um, as you mentioned, I was fortunate enough to study at Harvard and later at Wisconsin. And during my time in Madison, I became more religiously observant. And towards the end of my PhD, I realized that I had two options. I could stay in the U.S. and grow at a certain pace, or if I really wanted to grow before I had the obligations of a family, I'd go much faster in Israel. So I was very, very fortunate that the uh, that UW actually helped me get this Fulbright Fellowship. And in Israel, it was the only country where instead of being just a 12-month fellowship, it was a 22-month fellowship. So I had much more time in Jerusalem, and during that second part, I met my wife. So I never went back. You know, we obviously go back to visit my parents and family and for business. But since 1992, I've been very fortunate to live in Jerusalem. And uh, as you said, from the Midwest to the Mideast, it's been an incredible experience, and I'm you know, very fortunate to be here. I, I, I certainly can uh, second that motion. And uh, although our paths have been different, uh, the starting points were very close to one another. C- can you tell our listeners about your latest venture, Lishtot? Tell us how you came to develop such an exciting technology. It was a lot of work, and it was a tremendous amount of uh, help from heaven. In the sense that I was working on sensors since 1998, and we had some ups and downs. And that original company, Biosensor Systems, went out of business. And I was working on my own. I had a lab at home. And I started doing tests with doing something that you're not supposed to do. Everything in electricity, you have always um, two electrodes, positive and negative. I said, what happens if you just use one electrode? Now, all the books would say nothing happens. It shouldn't work. Well, I started using one electrode. And I started testing water. And I could, all of a sudden, I could distinguish between water that had bacteria and water that was clean. 
And this continued. It was quite reproducible. So a friend of mine for whom I'd been writing patents for a couple of years, he kind of noticed what I was doing, and he's a real good in electronics. So he said, let's try to make this into a real product. And so since then, since 2013, we've converted what was just, you know, something I was doing on a benchtop into a keychain device that can detect the presence of bacteria or heavy metals within three seconds without touching the water, actually. You can bring this device up to a cup or up to a bottle of water, and it'll tell you whether or not the water is clean for drinking. We've received our first U.S. patent on the invention. We have investors and some very interested companies. We have uh, partners in China. It's been an extremely exciting development, but again, it, I hadn't planned on it, but once I saw some results, I just kept running after them to see where they would go. Wow. How, of, how often do we have to be concerned these days about the water we drink? Are there places, even in the Western world, where we have to be concerned? That's an excellent question. Um, we're very fortunate in Israel to have extremely high-quality water, but even in Israel, on an average day, they'll change the source of your water 20 or 30 times without your feeling it. You know, sometimes it might come from the Canarits, other times it may come from underground sources, it may come from a desalination plant. And a person doesn't feel this, but the water sources do change. Overall, Israel's water is extremely good. Now, in the U.S., obviously everyone's aware of Flint, Michigan. Right. And more and more articles keep coming out saying that Flint is not an isolated case, that there are many places in the U.S. where they have very old piping and lead is an issue. The U.S. has on average 25 uh, boiled water notices, notices each day. So many communities have warnings. Oftentimes they're based on incomplete information in the sense that there's an initial test, looks problematic. They tell thousands of people they have to boil their water when really the problem is can be limited to maybe a couple of blocks, even sometimes just a couple of houses. And we don't have that information today. There's testing that goes on in a water production facility. But what we want to provide both in hand and also on pipe, we're working with a company an Israeli company called Arad. They make water meters. We're working to integrate our technology into their water meters. A person will have real-time information on his or her water, and we'll have a map. We'll have a map of every place where our sensor is being used. What's the real-time quality of the water? And that means that if something changes, a municipality could know instantly that a certain area is all of a sudden showing red. Something's gone wrong in this area, but the rest is okay. So our device sends the testing data through a smartphone back to us. And with that, we can then map out the quality of water anywhere in the world. When might we see your product available to the general public? Uh, the first devices hopefully will go on sale in the U.S. around July. The on-pipe device, we hope to have prototypes towards the end of the year. And mass production, we hope also by the end of the year, we'll be selling on Amazon, Walmart, etc. Wow, that's very exciting. So you mentioned Flint, and I just, you know, for my listeners and for my own sake, you know, whenever I see the, uh, a news item on Flint, they show the waters being really brown. I assume the water had a smell to it. How did people even think to drink this stuff? Well, that was, again, I mean, Flint is in one sense somewhat exceptional in the sense that lead poisoning and bacterial contamination the water looks exactly like normal water. Uh -huh. It's clear. Okay. There's no smell. In Flint, where they put very acidic river water into old lead pipes and corroded them, and as you say, I say the same thing. They come out yellow, brown, all the rest. One doesn't need my sensor to tell them, right. you have a problem here and you shouldn't drink this. But the, So that's certainly an extreme case. The extreme case being they have to replace all of the pipes. 
and it's going to cost them tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to do this and take a long time. But in many other places, if there's a bacterial problem or heavy metal problem or an organic chemical problem, the water looks completely fine. No one would know the difference. And that's where our sensor comes in. There's never been a sensor to allow an individual to test his or her own water. And we're actually expanding that beyond water also to soft drinks. But long and short is that we're hoping to provide information that's actually useful, that people know whether or not the source of their drinking material is reliable, useful, or maybe they should take a second thought or find a different place to drink. Okay, so if people want to follow the, the developments of your company and the product, uh, they should go to lishtot.com. Yeah, absolutely correct. Thank you very much, Phil. All right, so normally my podcasts deal with one aspect of my guest's life, which is generally a profession or business. However, Alan, I also wish to share with my listeners your experience as a victim of terror back in 2002. Can you share what happened on that awful day? Uh, absolutely. Um, at that time, BSD, uh, Biosensor Systems Design, was a full-fledged company with an office in downtown Jerusalem, a lab. And uh, I went there every single day to work. And so as we were approaching Passover, uh, our boys went on vacation. And so I took our oldest son, Yohonatan. I decided I took him to the doctor. And instead of taking him home while my wife was trying to clean the house, I figured I would take him with me to the lab. So it was 21st of March, as you mentioned, 2002. Took him to the doctor, took him to the lab. We had a fantastic time together. Around 4, 4.15 in the afternoon, we decided to go home. And so while walking back, to our house. How old, was, how, old, how old was he at that time? Yonatan was seven years old. Okay. And we were walking hand in hand. It was a very cold March day. And unbeknownst to me, a suicide bomber, former well, Palestinian policeman, had been escorted by two women, two women accomplices, to Jerusalem. He had on him a very powerful uh, explosive vest. He was behind us. And at 4.20 in the afternoon, he detonated himself. We were about three feet in front of him when he blew up. Uh, I was thrown 10, 15 feet forward. And when I finally landed on the King George Street sidewalk, my hand was just covered in blood. So that March, March 2002, was the highest number of suicide bombings in Israel during the entire Second Intifada. Hmm. So I knew, knew immediately what had happened because of what had been going on around us for a couple of years, but certainly during that very concentrated time of attacks. I got up, and I, I didn't see Yonatan. And so I ran back, and I found him face down where we'd been standing. When I picked him up, I could hear him moaning, but I, I had no idea what happened to him. So I ran with him instinctively just to get away from the site of the bombing, put him down, and several passers-by, they started to work on him. Well, I called my wife to tell her I couldn't hear anything. My, my ears had been blown out. But I told her that we were in a bombing, and someone's taking people taking care of us. So... We were taken to Hadassah Hospital, and in the ambulance, it became apparent that he had a, a, a head injury. I mean, they, they pulled away a towel from the back of his head, and it was soaked in blood. So yeah, that was the first time that I knew that he'd been injured in his head. And I'd had two screws passed through my left arm, and I had surgery that day to remove one. One came in and went out and wasn't there. The second was lodged in my left wrist. I had about six hours of surgery to have it removed and have uh, a vein for my leg put into my arm to replace one of the arteries. Yonatan had surgery to put a shunt in his brain to get the fluids out. And a couple months later, two months later, 
He had surgery to remove the shrapnel. It was the head of a Phillips screw that had blown up at the beginning of the explosion, apparently, and then passed through his coat and then passed through his brain and lodged itself in his uh, front cranial bone. So, yeah, we were American terror victims, which, unfortunately, there are actually hundreds of them. And uh, it took months and even years of physical, emotional recovery. We're still very, very sensitive to the issue of attacks. I think everyone here is extremely sensitive, but when we hear of these things, it unfortunately takes us back to those times. And we sued those who were involved in the attacks in which were injured, the Palestinian Authority and the PLO. Exactly. That was what I wanted to know. You can tell us how you were able to fight back against terror in the U.S. court system. So in 1991, the U.S. passed a quite extraordinary law, the uh, Anti-Terror Act, which allows uh, American terror victims to sue for being injured outside of the U.S. When uh, this fellow Klinghoffer was murdered outside of the U.S., the U.S. found that it had no laws to allow victims to seek redress. So the law was passed in 1991, and we used the services of Nitsana Darshan Leitner, who is the world's biggest expert in these kind of lawsuits. We joined 10 other American families in 2004, all who had been wounded or somehow injured in Jerusalem, around 2002. The 11 families sued the Palestinian Authority and the PLO in um, federal court, district court in uh, the Southern District of New York. PLO and their lawyers did everything possible to delay justice. They fought at every turn. They tried to have the case thrown out numerous times and they never succeeded. And in 2014, against all the PLO and the PA's efforts, the court went to, uh, the case went to trial in New York, it was uh, 12 men and women, all of them non-Jewish, by the way, and the jury found the PLO guilty in our case and all the cases. They were found guilty of 24 counts uh, providing uh, material support to terrorists, to being actively involved in the six attacks related to these uh, families. Uh, the judgment was a $218 million judgment, which when it was trebled, it became a $655.5 million judgment against the PA and the PLO. The case is currently in appeal. We were at the appeal last month in the Second Circuit, also in New York. And we're hopeful that we should win our appeal and actually take out the monies from the PA and the PLO. The U.S., unfortunately, State Department is siding with the bad guys. They've actively gotten themselves involved in trying to help the PLO after this massive judgment. Trying to, They asked the judge not to demand a very large uh, appeal bond, and the judge agreed with them. He uh, willing to lower the amount, but we look forward to victory. We look forward to holding these people responsible for that, which they did start. Well, we wish you much success, and uh, hopefully it will be uh, sooner rather than later. But in, in light of your experience, both of, of the being a victim of terror and, and the fact that you were able to find a way to fight back, what, what would be your advice for other victims of terror? And, and let me add one other question. In addition, is there, is there an emotional downside to reliving the terrible experience through an extended battle in court? Those are excellent questions. Um, as to other terror victims, you know, again, I, each person has his or her own experience and also brings his or her own, uh, honestly, personal baggage and how you know, they, they look at these things. The one feeling, you know, again, I think that as Jews, I don't think we ever feel that we're helpless in the sense of a person all of a sudden finds himself in trouble or hears something bad. He always knows he can, he can pray. He always knows he can maybe give some uh, charity and hopefully these things can bring, you know, a, a good outcome. So 
you know, the question is, you know, what can we do? And, you know, we felt that suing them, I mean, uh, we, you know, we spoke to a rabbi with whom we're very close. And so he said, are you suing them to prove that they're guilty or are you suing them to take out the money? I said, we're suing them to take out the money. We're trying to dry up the swamp. We want them to know that terror doesn't pay. And if they're going to do these kind of things, either they're going to go out of business or they're going to have to change their ways because they can't afford to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage those who can to fight. You know, as to, you know, the second question of reliving this, you know, we were very, very fortunate that uh, there's no cross-examination in court. Reliving those moments was hard enough. Uh, my, I broke down. My wife broke down um, on the stand. Uh, that, that's challenge enough. Fortunately, we did not have cross-examination, which we'd had in the, uh, obviously, with the depositions, which was really ugly. But, again, it's a price, but this is something we've been, it's, it's a burden we've been given, and my feeling is we have to do the best we can with it. Each person has a, his or her own life to live. We've been given this challenge, and we're trying to make the most of it to help others and also to realize justice, justice in every way. Well, again, we wish you only the, the ultimate success. Now, I'll end with the following question. In the Jewish tradition, our rabbis often end a sad haftarah with a positive ending from another source. So can you report to us on how you and your son have recovered and are doing? Uh, yeah, well, okay. So, you know, thank God we're good. I mean, my arm is completely functional. It's not the most beautiful thing. Uh, our son, Yonatan, you know, he, he's learning yeshiva. He's a very good boy. There still are some issues. I mean, he still has a little bit of a limp, and there are some issues that are not 100% uh, cured. But just as people say that the fact that Jewish people are here today and, you know, thank God, growing, that's the ultimate answer to what, you know, we went through in the Holocaust. I I hope and believe that our being here and living as Jews in Eretz Israel, that is the final word on what these people tried. They tried to kill us. In Vahisha, in the Sha'amda, they tried to kill us, and we're here doing mitzvahs and learning Torah. There's, I don't think there's a greater answer to that in terms of what they tried to do. We did exactly the opposite. So I should hope we should be able to do it for many, many years going forward. All right. We, we, I certainly, again, it's an emotional thing. It's a topic. Uh, I know it's, it's already a long time ago, but obviously it's something that's not hard to relive. Um, I did have, I will give you a plug, I did have the privilege on one of my uh, recent plane trips to read your book. <laughs> um, is that something that about your story and particularly about your experience, you and your son, is that something that is available to the public? Uh, right now it isn't. I'm considering putting it out on Amazon uh, you know, and, and through Kindle. It, I, I may bring it out. It, it, it's a tough one because it deals mostly with Yonatan. I mean, right, my injuries right. were relatively light. His are much more... Uh, and, you know, hopefully he's going to get married soon and live his own life. And I'm not sure this is the kind of stuff he would want out. I, I, I wrote the book for two reasons. One was I, I felt it was important to write as these things were happening so as not to forget. But also there were so many unique phenomena that occurred, like our neighbors in the neighborhood of Shari Chesed, they cooked for us for two months. And... They even when it came time to finish, we were started to going shopping, getting back to our life. I, and I asked them to stop. They said, "Well, please take food for the next two weeks because the people already cooked for you, and they froze and they really want to give it to you." So I felt that these things had to be recorded because after ten years, person wouldn't remember these small little details. But we, we were very fortunate that an enormous number of people came to our side and helped us in every single way, from big things to small things. But I wanted it all recorded. So it, it might be out in Amazon Kindle in the next month. I'm not sure. But, again, those who have read it have seemed to really enjoy it and found that it, it speaks to them. So 
So I'm, I'm still not sure on that one. I, I did really enjoy it, and I, I would say to you the following, again, what your final decision is is obviously up to you and your family, but I think that the public, when they hear about a terrorist incident and they first read, well, no one got killed or one person got killed, barred forbid, and then they hear, well, X number of people got injured, they sort of say, okay, as long as they didn't die, uh, that's the important thing. But your book does tell people what people who are injured it's a long road but i think it's uh, important for people to understand what people have to go through to to recover i appreciate it and, and I, that's one of the that would be the major reason i would i would bring it up is I, I have given a lot of talks and exactly for that reason because as you say people hear an attack they hear 30 seconds on television and they think that's that's it they saw some sirens they saw some people screaming but then there are years and years that go on after that but, but as you say right. that you know, that's it. That's the zero point. I mean, just as, you know, I mean, everything's measured from 9-11. As before 9-11, after that, that's how it is in each person's individual life. Correct. It was, I, 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 when I was in, when I, was, I know you saw in the book, but I was lying in bed, you know, two, a day after the bombing, and, you know, my optometrist calls and says, you know, your contact lenses are ready. <laughs> it had no meaning. You know, if, if I'd been at home, right. I said, this is great news. I'll go pick them right. up. I'm sitting there. My kid's in the ICU. My arm's all messed up. What do I care about contact lenses? They, they have no meaning for me. And they're actually his store is right around the corner from where the bombing was. So all I had to do was just mention, you know, what happened yesterday. He said, oh, okay, forget it. We'll, we'll be in touch later. But that, that's, yeah, every, all your values completely get turned upside down because, yeah, you're living a new life. Well, again, thanks for sharing about your very exciting new venture, Lishtot. I, uh, I think it's, uh, it's something the world needs, and uh, you should have great success. And we uh, wish you also success in your uh, fight against terror and uh, your son and yours' uh, complete recovery. Thank you very much, Phil. And to you too, much success, much joy with your family, and hopefully we should only hear good news on all things. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.pstein.com or look for Philip Stein and Associates on Facebook and LinkedIn.